0: Welcome to Koshris on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine. And tonight we have, I think, a very good show. It's uh, based on things that just happened the last couple of days, things that I get, calls I get, uh, some questions I get, it's a little, little of my research. I think it's uh, very interesting. It's amazing how cashless doesn't stay it doesn't stay in one place it keeps moving every every minute something's happening i just got an email from one of our listeners by the way um who contacts me fairly regularly after the show and this time he contacted me for the show so i'm sure he's not surprised that i'm mentioning his uh his email and he sent me uh, a a little note from uh One of the Kaspers, the Kaspers agency in in Lakewood, New Jersey, where they uh, they put out a little alert and it said that there's a company called Organic Girl. It doesn't have any hashgaha, but the uh, Organic Girl is the uh, is a company that makes vegetables, those kind of vegetables, leafy vegetables that need inspection. And what they do is that they triple wash it. And they say 3X, meaning triple washed, and they, they push that. And it's a very nice little packaging. And this is a very uh, high-quality product that's making it into many stores. The interesting part, and that's why it was mentioned there in New Jersey, in Lakewood, and it's very interesting for us, even if you don't live in Lakewood, is that they're selling this in the from stores in Lakewood. That means that right near your your kosher uh, certified uh, vegetables, you're seeing f- fresh vegetables from this company that does triple washing. And it's being sold to you in your local from store. Your local from store in Lakewood. Not one store, a number of them. Somehow this got in. So I can't see any symbol on it. I don't think there is any symbol on it. I, I, I just saw it on you know, uh, online, I don't know if maybe there is a symbol, maybe somebody does certify, but the front side definitely didn't say it. I didn't see anything that said that it was certified. And this is being sold in the from stores in competition with the uh, kosher certified products that people spend years developing, tremendous amount of money and effort to try to preserve the cashless standards. But a triple wash gets next door. And this is something that we have to all be a little bit concerned about whether you ever gonna see this organic girl or not gonna see it whether it's gonna be a problem for you or not the problem is that stores will put products in there that confuse you and they're putting right near where you're purchasing I got a call actually I called (laughs) I was calling I'm, um, you know, we we're doing the Mashgiach of the Year award now. This is the time of year, right? We're going next week. We're going to be giving the award, and I won't tell you any details about who is going to get the award because that would be unfair. And we do it at the Kosher Fest, second day of Kosher Fest, Wednesday afternoon. I think it's, I think it's somewhere about two o'clock. I'm not sure exactly myself what time it is, and uh, but I can promise you one thing, that the mashkir of the year this year is out of this world i won't i won't explain to you what i'm to you what i mean but he's out of this world and and you'll be able to learn more about it uh not next week but the following week because next week is before the show and the following week we'll be able to give you all the details i hope to have him on if i can if i can't maybe record it i'm not sure yet what it's going to be I'll try to get him on for the following week and next week we're going to talk a little bit about kosher fest and we're going to uh, talk about a few other interesting things that are happening. I can I can tell you that I've already started them. I just don't don't want to talk about them this week. So one of the things I wanted to mention was this problem of products making it into the store next to the things that we're that we're buying. And I got this. I called a mashkiach. Uh I could tell you where he is, but I'm not going to give it away. And he's out of town. And. Uh, very highly recommended by somebody that I know from his, to the time he grew up. The rabbi, I knew him as a kid, and he's now a rabbi out of town. And this this is the one mashkiach, tamidi, that they have in that vod. The one, I'm sorry, not me, the one full-time mashkiach that the vod has. And I spoke with him, and uh, he didn't make it to be the mashkiach of the year, but he's a very nice man, and he said to me, do you mind if I ask you to, uh, if you if you can do something? Because I'm on a campaign. He's he, he's he's making a campaign. Uh, he comes from Muncie. That's another town. <laughs> very firm town, right? Lakewood. Torah town in the USA. And uh, Muncie. Irak These are very wonderful uh, communities. And in Muncie, he has a problem that there is a brand of vegetables with uh, a, a kosher symbol that is one that almost nobody uses. I, 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 that's what I'm finding out, that almost nobody uses his hashkocha. I mean, obviously there are people who getting paid, but to, basically it's not being used very much, and it's on these vegetables. And they're being sold right next to the fruit vegetables with the name of Hashkacha, four hashkachas, you know, the the positive bodeg, uh, Eden, all this stuff. You know, the ones that are the uh, the top of the line, you know, that, that 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 people have confidence in, that are specially grown. And right next to it is another vegetable, uh, with leafy vegetables, with uh, with the hashkacha from a rabbi that. Uh, doesn't really make it, you know. Most everybody wouldn't wouldn't accept him, but it's being sold in all the from stores. Well, I should say all in some of the from stores in Muncie, and the gentleman, this rabbi, told me the names of the stores. It's it, it, it was astounding, and that means that when you go into a store, you you're actually, um, you know, like in the wild, woolly West. You have to look for things, even though it's a from store on the top of the sign says kosher, Glat kosher, you know and there may even be hashka on the store because they have a department that has hashgacha another department that has a department. Uh, let's say the, uh, maybe there's on the, has on the meat and maybe on the fish and maybe on the repackaging. but is there a hashkahha on these vegetables? No. Because it's prepackaged, it says already the names of the Oshkoches. or this one over here that the the the, the, the uh, organic girl doesn't have any. Maybe that's no hashgacha, but it, it's sitting out there, and you know, we could see it what it is. But they're putting it right there. We had a problem here, um, not not a few blocks away from here. We mentioned it on the radio several times. It seems that it was a store here, right near where I'm talking. Maybe a just a couple blocks from here maybe is it like uh, it's no more than five six blocks from here and that store was selling products that uh, you know do not belong in uh, from home definitely don't and uh, the people called me up try to get them to take it out they're from owners I went spoke to them I I actually met the (laughs) Kiyach and he said to me first I don't own the store and secondly um, there are people in our neighborhood here who have a certain rabbi, I won't mention names, and that rabbi is a Talmud of a certain other rabbi, I won't mention names. And that that rabbi says you can eat all this stuff. With a hashgachah, without a it doesn't need any hush. It's okay. It's contrary to everything that I've known and I've seen, and that I would I would expect people from to know, and yet there's a certain elements in our society that say, no problem. And this store, so I said, but, you know, we don't hold that way. We don't, I know, he said, but we don't want to lose them as customers. That's a a significant amount. And they told me that if you won't carry these products, we're not going to come into the store. So here we have a situation where I have to shop in a store and see things and maybe get confused for a second Maybe I, maybe I can make a mistake. Maybe I'm going to grab that package, think it's the same as the other or similar, and walk out with it. And not every, every consumer is so sophisticated. So that's something that, that, that was a little shocking to me, that this is in Lakewood, New Jersey, that little sign that I got. It was almost impossible to read it, but it is a sign that was being you know, sent around in Lakewood about this particular product. Being found in a number of stores in Lakewood. So, you know, a lot to buyer, beware. What can we tell you? Another thing I want to point out is that this came up uh, today. I get these emails all the time, and you're gonna see them uh, in in the uh, in the newspapers, they're gonna say, you know this is an unauthorized hashkafa from so and so or this is no longer certified by so and so and they never tell you the next step is there else somebody else taking responsibility for this establishment or this product i had a situation today where i you know i came across a uh, actually i didn't come across it i got a call i got a call today the gentleman called me a week ago And he didn't, uh, just a little more than a week ago, he called me. And he said, I have a product, and I don't know where you are. And I wasn't in the office, and there was nobody there at that moment. And then when we spoke to him, we we didn't actually end up speaking until today. He called me again. I called him back, but he didn't call me back, and today I spoke with him. And he's telling me about this product that has an unauthorized Hashkaha so i said really yeah? i said yes and he says but it has two hashgachas it has this hashgacha on it and that hashgacha on it and the one that has the the one that he likes doesn't say dairy next to it and the other one says dairy and the ingredients are clearly dairy how come they don't have a d on it i said let's see if it's really a certified product it sounds a little suspicious usually these big hashgacha don't share the space on the label with each other so I looked into it and sure enough there was another Hashkacha, one that um, some people use and some people don't use and and that hashgacha is the one on the product and the Hashkacha from this national organization is not correct, it's unauthorized and what happened was, when he couldn't get through to me, he took this to that conscious organization's office. And the next day, there was an announcement. You didn't see it yet, but there was an announcement. You will see it if you get my magazine, if you get the conscious monthly. Maybe they appeared in some papers, but, they'll, but it'll say that there was an unauthorized. But it doesn't tell you that the other person is there. I think it's terrible. I personally think it's terrible. Whether they you like him, you don't like him. Some people do, some people don't. He's a from person. And, 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 and I don't think that it's appropriate. But this is what's being done. They just disregard everything else. When they drop a hashgacha, or the hashgacha drops them, you see the sign, no longer certified by so-and-so. Okay. But does it have hashkacha? And And very often it does. And very often they know who it is and very often the the company dropped dash gacha and took a different one but you're going to see a sign this is no longer certified by and the fellow who took dash doesn't necessarily put an announcement in the papers the one that dropped it always puts an announcement but the one who took it on doesn't usually put an announcement so this company suffers for a good deal of time because people think it's not certified and we go out of our way try to find out if those if somebody has picked up those hashkafos. I can't always do it, but we try to find out who took on the hashkafah. In other words, here you're getting partial information. So when you read these things, you're getting partial information. When you go to your store to shop, you're you're not guaranteed that all the kind of products in the store are on the same level. And I mean, and, and that's an intentional decision. By the uh, owner of the store, and sometimes it happens, by the way, in these bigger uh, kinds of establishments that you know the you know the, the huge supermarkets that are look like the Agoria uh, ones, the big ones. A lot of them take in a lot of products without uh, concern too much because you know they they they're moving product. Maybe this is I expect non-Jews to buy it. Whatever their reasoning is. But you have to be a little bit more concerned, even if it's a from big supermarket. Another issue came up. I, was, uh, I, I would give a shear on, I give a few shear on Sunday morning, give two shear on Sunday morning. And uh, somebody comes up, invariably, uh, some people come up to me with questions. This person came up to me with uh, three questions at the end of the shear. And uh, I, and, he, and he was asked me, when can I get the answer? <laughs> so I said, I'm going to work on it. I can't promise you when I'm going to get an answer. But I did work on it right away, and I'm going to share with you some of the, the things that we're talking about. Not all of them. This is one of them I'm still very vague about. It seems that one of the rabbis in our community made an announcement about a week ago, uh, in a public shear very well-attended public shia that the badats in Israel uh, came out with news that salt is not being produced the way we thought it was or the way we, it was at one time, and that now um, you can no longer use salt. Not only can't you use it directly in a kli rishon on Shabbos, you can't use it in a kli and I would add, you can't add it onto a hot, solid food. So that's what people want to do. And we were, for mo- most of us, were quite lenient with salt because uh, that's what all the sperm was saying. All the sperm. I, I-, I looked it up today and I saw uh, Shmir Shabbos Galchasa. I understand. I understand. Uh, I'm not going to mention sperm that I didn't see. I remember Shimon and discussing it. And... Uh, And I remember seeing it in in a number of uh, places where they, they list the halacha, and all of them were saying that we're lenient. Now, the truth of the matter is, salt is an issue, because there are two sources. One source in the Gemara makes it sound like salt is something that doesn't get cooked at all easily, you need to keep it in a, a long time in a clearish on the fire, in order to get it cooked, and and they're talking and they're talking about uh, the salt is like they said it's it's like meat, it takes hours to cook. Cook salt, obviously they don't mean our table salt, it dissolves very quickly, and then there's an there's another uh, unless maybe you say this doesn't change it's it, it, you don't see it anymore but it doesn't change the state I, I don't know. That it's a little bit of a trip to say that. Now, now there is, of course, I don't know if you know about it, people use a big salt block to cook on. And it takes months until that thing disappears. So they cook on a or put something down and they put hot things in it on a salt block. So that, that, that is true. That, is, that people are doing that. It's by Himalayan salt in a big block, and then they do their cooking on that. Okay, I, I, I understand that, but that's not probably what the Gemara meant. Maybe it did, maybe that's what the Gemara meant. I don't know. But the, uh, but the other opinion in the Gemara, the other statement in the Gemara is that salt works exactly the opposite. Salt gets cooked very quickly. That's what we call Kali Habishal, very, 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 very quickly cooked. So then if it's something that's Kali Habishal, we have to be very concerned about it, even in the Clefshani. I'm not going to say more than that, but even in a Clefshani. So this is, the, this is uh, the information that was given out. It's a large public shear here in Flatbush. And uh, I'm sure that uh, people took that, uh, and uh, I'm not saying with a grain of salt, they took it and, they, and that's the new, the new halacha. But I wanted to find out more about it, and I spent a lot of time on it. And I can only tell you part of what I know, and I, I feel that everybody should really ask their own rabbi at this point. Um, although the rabbis probably don't know that much about the actual process. And I'm going to spend more time on this. It's just a quick research right now. So let me tell you what um, a good friend of mine told me. He say, I emailed him and he said that uh, he wasn't aware at all about this badatz thing. But he said that there the, are the, the two types Basically, it's sea salt and mountain salt. You know, you mine, the, the, your mind, it's been mined, you go into, a, into the mountains and then you carve out the salt. And that's not, the mountain salt isn't cooked. And the Sikh salt is cooked. That's what he says it's uh, cooked in trays, or, you know, they call it beds or they call it trays. And that's what his experience has been. And he's quite familiar with all the aspects of Kashras. But I went much further into it than that. And I, I'm going to share with you some of the things, some of the highlights of what I found. I think one has to, to take a moment and go to, uh, you know, you have, you have to go to Morton because uh, who, who knows salt better than Morton Salt? That's one of the biggest companies in America, and, uh, and they have a wonderful piece on salt. It seems that they get their salt from a number of different sources, and that's also very interesting. What is our salt? First of all, we, there's no there's no such thing anymore as our salt. <laughs> I don't know if you realize it. People are using sea salt, and they're using table salt. Usually, the table salt is is more likely to be the mined version, and the sea salt is from the sea, which is the you know they dry out the 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 water, the water sea water, and we're going to see how, and then you get salt. So there's two salts there already different, the sea salt and the regular salt. And now, people are buying specialty salts. And those specialty salts come from uh, waters all across the world, uh, maybe they come mined also. And then there's this Himalayan sea salt, the uh, Himalayan salt where they actually cut a piece out of the, uh, the, the mine and, the, and you cook on it. I, 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 I know a little bit about that because it was explained to me from beginning to end. It's just a very strange thing because we don't really, uh, most of us don't know, don't come into contact with that. But that's, if you're going to go high-end cooking, people like that, yes. Anyway, let me tell you a little bit what Morton said. So Morton said we have three places we get the salt from. We have uh, what they call solar evaporation method, rock salt mining method, and the third one is a vacuum evaporation method. So each one's different. Let's hear a little bit about each one. The solar evaporation method, I mean, you can imagine what that is, right? You're going to dry out with the sun. It's the oldest method of making salt. It's been used since salt crystals were first discovered. And they were discovered by people, there's no discoverer, but when they, people saw that in the seawater was trapped in small pools and they saw salt developed in the bottom, and I suppose they tasted it, and they see that it was very salty. It's, its use is practical only in warm climates where the evaporation rate is exceeds the precipitation rate. Otherwise, you're not going to have evaporation. So it's got to be hot. Solar salt uh, production is typically the capturing of salt water in shallow ponds where the sun evaporates most of the water. And that's how you get the evaporation method, of the solar evaporation method. There are usually two types of ponds that they use. One is called a concentration pond, where they take the salty water from the ocean or the salt lake, and they concentrate it there. And then afterwards, they have a crystallizing pond where the salt is actually produced. Now, This next part was extremely interesting to me. Crystallizing ponds, that's what they actually make, the salt. They range, listen to this, from 40 to 200 acres. <laughs> Could you imagine 200 acres? And that's called a pond. <laughs> okay, it's bigger than in most of the lakes you've seen in your life. Crystallizing ponds of 40 to 200 acres with a foot-thick floor of salt resulting from years of deposits. And during the salt-making season of four or five months, they take brine from that uh, concentrating pond and they lead it into this uh, crystallizing pond. And it continually flows in there this whole uh, four to six months, four to five months. And it, it, it's a saturated brine solution. And it's, it has as much salt as it could possibly hold. So the, the it ends up being when it dries up, it's like you've got real salt. It's a it's a natural. Uh, they, they, they have uh, they return the natural chemical impurities that return to the salt water source. So basically, you've got the pure salt, and that's the solar evaporation. Then you have the second one, which is rock salt, which you mine it in the in the in these uh, the mountains. So Morton uses the this which other one which is the second oldest method to get uh, salt, underground mining. Now this is a trip. You remember the mining is is being played out because they're getting rid of coal. Israel is now no longer in. It's a few years from now. Israel, I think, in 2030. Israel is going to stop completely using coal. Coal is over with. Too many people got trapped in the mines and died, and this and that. And it's so dirty, and it's uh, whatever it is. They, they they we're getting away from it, but mines are used for salt, very very much so. And Morton is using it. Listen to what happens though. Large machines travel through a vast cave-like passages, performing various operations. And this is, and then they say a, a line which is for you know, <laughs> good PR. Salt mines are among the safest of mines because they know that mines are not safe. But it, it has advantages. The temperature is about 70 degrees Fahrenheit all year round in their in the, in the mines. They're not freezing. But salt may appear in the veins, like uh, you know the salt deposits, and it can also be found in domes, which are formed with earth pressures force the salt up through cracks in the bedrock from depths as great as 30,000 or 40,000 feet. Could you imagine that they're being formed, the salts are being formed from 30,000, 40,000 feet below the surface? Amazing. Now these domes look like plugs, almost circular in shape. And this is another winner. at a few hundred yards to a mile across. Solid salt up to a mile across, and it means that that's a radi- that's a uh, that's a di- that's a diameter. So you're talking about uh, three, you know, pi times that, right? Most domes in North America are located in the south, from Alabama to Texas, with many out underwater in the Gulf of Mexico. Now he describes how you cut the whole thing. I'm not going to go into it. They have, uh, first they cut something and then they have holes. Uh, We don't have to hear all that. But they use, uh, how the machinery. We don't need that either. And I think we're going to go on to the third one, which is very, 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 very interesting. Vacuum evaporation method. Another method of salt production that's used by Morton Salt is the evaporation of salt brine by steam heat in large commercial evaporators called vacuum pans. This is where my friend definitely is correct that they're doing something in the uh, what he called um, cooking it in trays or beds. And that's this this vacuum evaporation method. But it's obviously not the solar one, which is the oldest method used. And how much is done by solar and how much is done by vacuum, I don't know. This method yields a very high purity of salt, fine in texture, and principally used in those applications requiring the highest quality salt. So your highest quality salt is probably going to be um, from this, which means that it would be mutter to put into the cliché. The other ones raise serious questions because no heat is applied, at least from what we know now now there's a thing called uh, the the first part of the operation in this vacuum evaporation is known as solution mining they drill wells several hundred feet to to a a thousand feet apart into the salt deposit and then these wells obviously they're getting a a liquid salt coming up the brine is pumped into vacuum pans and then in the vacuum pan The steam is fed to the first pan, so they use steam in these pans. So there definitely are methods that with the salt water, uh, uh, I mean, the salt water method, or with the uh, whether it's vacuum evaporation or it's the solar evaporation. Either of these methods, they're definitely using heat. So we are going to, and I heard when one of the things that I read, it said that the heat can be as close as to. very close to boiling. So we're talking serious heat. We can say that it's cooked, and then we don't have a pressure about it being recooked, and that's why you can put it into a cliché. Klee we're trying to get away from because of the fact in the Gemara, it has a different opinion that says that salt doesn't get cooked until you cook it for a very long time on the fire. So we're, we're machmir a little bit based upon that opinion that that statement in the gemara and uh and and yet on the bottom line we would be making in a cliche so that would go for your salt that is uh sea salt or that came either the vacuum method evaporation method or the solar evaporation method but when you're getting into the mind ones it's not cooked and you have to know where what salt are you getting so that's, that really is a, uh, something that every person has to find a little bit more about. And, of course, if it says sea salt, then you, could, then you can rely on what I just told you now that, and put it into the cliché. If you don't know that, so based upon the concern that the Ada has, and this rabbi who was a strong uh, voice in our community here has said publicly, so I would suggest being concerned about adding the salt uh, to cliche or onto hot, hot, uh, solid food. If in case, uh, you, unless you find out more about the source of your salt and that it was from the mine salt and that, I'm sorry, that it wasn't from the mine salt. but It was from a mine salt, from a mountain salt, from the caves, from what we were talking about before digging in there, then I would suggest that you be machmir from now on until you hear further no, n- news. And if I find out anything further, I will share with you. And if anybody has divergent opinions or information, I'm ready to hear it. And you can contact me at 718-336-8544. Or you can send me an email at kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com. Again, 718-336-8544. I'm not there now. That's the office number and the, uh, the email is kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S at AOL.com Okay. Second question that was asked on Sunday. <laughs> um, this, this gentleman said that he, he found that also that animal glycerin is the predominant glycerin today. At one time, vegetable was the predominant glycerin. So the, if something has glycerin, the question was, well, it says glycerin but most of our glycerin is from vegetables so you don't have to worry so much and that was what people did when they had shilas let's say with the toothpaste and the things like that so they said oh it's glycerin you know more than likely it's not from from an animal but that changed that's what he said to me that this rabbi said and I investigated and it is true my maiden answered me 80% is from animal And that's been the situation for the last four to five years. So glycerin, as far as we're concerned, you have to be machmir. If you think something has glycerin, then you have to be concerned about it. By the way, glycerin is sweet tasting. It's not disgusting or zero taste. It's put in for its mild palatable effect, which means positive taste. So it's got a positive taste, and it's most likely... 80%, 80%, most likely, from non-kosher animals. So the, if something has glycerin, it's a no-no. The third question I'm not ready to answer, it's just too much for me tonight, and I think I'll go pass on that one and leave it for another time. You know, when it came to this mashkiach of the Year, we, every year, this is the most difficult part of my, <laughs> the most difficult part of the job that I set up for myself is choosing the mashkiach of the Year. They're wonderful people. How can you choose one over the other? So I tell you, I'll tell you the secret. The secret is that I've been doing it for seven or eight years, or eight years already, and I know what I want. I know what I think is good. I know what what excites me about somebody, it's their enthusiasm. It's always their enthusiasm, it's always that they care. And Baruch Hashem, many, these show me in a second how much they care about their job. That's why it gets a little hard to choose between one and the other. But I think we chose very well this year. I really do. I feel that he was heads and shoulders above the others. I don't know his size, by the way. I haven't seen him in person. You know, I only, it's all over the phone. I'd seen the picture, but I didn't see him in person. And uh, so I, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, enough about these people before the agency gives me a little information and I have to wing it and ask them questions. We spend a nice little bit of time on the phone and when I see that the person is really a good candidate, I give them more time and then I, and I'm writing my notes because I want to... I, I, <laughs> foolishly this time I didn't uh, record it but I have all these notes and talking about it you know it's the stories he told me and the things that he said and 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 his attitude and you get the feeling of this person and you're impressed. Mashkichem are very very impressive I know a lot of Mashkichim you're never excited about it he looked like he could sleep half asleep or something I don't know maybe there's such people like that around but the Mashkichem that I talk to they are upbeat these are people that, these are real people. It's very exciting. I, I, I love it, and I hate it. I love it because I get a chance to talk to some great people. And I hate it because it's very hard to, um, to choose between such good, good people. But we did very well this year. I can just tell you, he's out of this world. And you'll agree with me when I speak to you, when I tell you who it is and everything. You'll say, oh, good gesagt." <laughs> we'll go on now to a few other things. By the way there's a lot of literature i have here a pile literally a pile of literature i'm not going to go through it that all about this uh about this salt and it's to get to the real information it's it's hard it's very very hard because the you know i mean the best thing of course is to take a company or a few companies and call them up and and speak to them interview them and find out what methods they're using and how it's done exactly because we're reading these detailed information, yeah. But how much is from here? How much is from there? Are they mixed? Uh, did, can I tell? so if it's something I can easily tell, then it's my job to, to 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 check it out. I mean, if it says it's coming from certain waters, then we know it's the sea salt. And if it's some, if it's telling you it's coming from, uh, you know, it's coming from the mines or some from this country where they, that's all they do is the mining, then you could figure that out too. I'm going to share with you some information. I didn't ask permission, so please, I hope no one gets offended. And I'm going to share with you some information from an ACO meeting. The ACO is the Association of Conscious Organizations. ACO has two meetings a year. Uh, I mean, they have plenty of meetings within the uh, organization between different people, but the, the two main meetings, one is called a, uh, a, 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 a convention for the VADIM, And one is the national convention, uh, which they have in Manhattan in the OU offices, and that's done the day after Kosher Fest. Next week, Tuesday and Wednesday is Kosher Fest, and Thursday is the ACO meeting. But I'm giving you last year's ACO from the VADEM conference, not actually this year's. It was the VADEM conference in 2000, actually. Yeah, in 2017. What's well, very interesting, some of the material here is extraordinary. One of the, the, the highlights of these get-togethers is they have asked the Poisek. All right, I mean, you know, I'm not sure I'm, I agree with every Poisek, who would the Poisek is supposed to be. Maybe my, my Poisek would be different. Everybody has their own per, personal feeling of who should be the Poisek of our generation, or who are the biggest Robunnam in America. But ACO has an association with some top-notch people and if they're not the poskim, they're good solid rabbis who are i mean solid rabbis i know these people these are solid rabbanim in halacha not just the 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 top people okay anyway they're sitting there and they they just they ask a question whoever wants to answer will answer it i'm going to zero in on a few of the questions that they got asked one is about kosher meat. Here's the question. I read you the answers. I won't give you the names. You'll have to find out the names another way because I'm not authorized to, to, uh, to print it or you know to, to, to spread the information. I'm just giving you basically an idea. In recent years there's been more and more demand for meat which qualifies as base Yosef. Base Yosef means bet Yosef. It means that what the Aruch of Yosef Karo said in the base Yosef that you have to have meat that's glatt kosher. So Spartan have to have meat that's glat kosher and uh, the uh, glat kosher according to the standards of Beit Yosef which is that it should have no sirkos whatsoever no adhesions of the lung to the diaphragm whatsoever. That is something that is was considered to be very rare of base Yosef but the Svardim is supposed to be using Bet Yosef. The Ashkenazim did not have to use Bet Yosef, did not have to use glott And uh, it, it, uh, w- years ago, none of us ate glott except maybe Svardim, maybe Hasidim, some Hasidim, maybe. But basically, it was no, there was nothing out there. But the Hasidim it, uh, pushed it, and eventually it got to a point where all the conscious organizations go only glott but the Bet Yosef thing uh, is basically uh, relegated to the Svardim and those who want to have it. And But more and more people wanted to have it because they thought we're getting better meat, but more kosher. So therefore, it's uh, tr- producing a tremendous amount of meat that is called Bet Yosef Glat. Whether it is or isn't, it's called Bet Yosef Glat. In recent years, there's been more and more demand for meat which qualifies as base Yosef. People in the meat industry report that, in order to satisfy this demand, certain hachshirim have effectively lowered the standard, such that what they currently sell as base yosef is equivalent to what they used to call glot, and what they sell as glot is akin to what they used to be called non-glot. Okay, you didn't hear me, right? Okay, good we can't say these things on the air there is a certain discomfort with this change which is not being presented to the rabbinic community nor to the public in a transparent manner I hope you get the drift of, drift of what we're saying here what we're saying is that when you this, this by the way Rabbi Heinemann Zolzaynkez and Moshe uh, he, he, he he was been talking about this publicly so many times He said that, you know, at at one point he said, I will not give Hashkocha to Beit Yosef Glat because it's going to end up that you're going to be doing exactly what people are saying is happening now, that it's going to be lowering the standard. And it's not going to really be Beit Yosef Glat. But he was forced into it because of the business, The, the, uh, the companies that he certifies have to have Beit Yosef because the demand is so great for Beit Yosef that they had to start producing it. And they're doing an unbelievable percentage today of Beit Yosef Klaa, whereas years ago they couldn't get that. Now how did it happen that the animals get more cooperative? <laughs> is it a Hateva? Did the world change? Or is it... Uh, <laughs> I didn't. You didn't hear me say it, but I did say it. I said that this is what they, they asked the questioner asked. People in the meat industry report that in order to satisfy the demand, Certain Harcherim have effectively lowered the standard by w- such that what they currently sell as base Yosef is equivalent to what they used to be called considered glot, and what they sell as glot is more like what they used to sell as non-glot. So this was the uh, point that was raised, and the uh, that was the questioner, and uh, he's asking what our reaction should be. So this was the answer of the Posek. But Moshe Feinstein once was surprised as to how much glatt meat was available in the United States. When he lived in Luban, back in Europe, they would shecht 10 animals a week. Now they're doing 100 an hour. They would shecht 10 animals a week, and there would usually be only one glatt animal every three weeks. Can do the numbers now. That's one out of thirty. That's three percent. And there were even months that not one animal was glad. And I talk about bay Yosef, just glad, whatever glad is, right? And there were months he said where they didn't have that. So it's less than three percent. A thousand thirty percent. I'm sorry. am uh, well, no, I was right? Uh, 10, 30, one out of uh, uh, one, one out of thirty. So it's less than 3%. If so, how is it possible that so many venues claim to be all-glot all the time? Clearly, what they're claiming to be glot is really just plain kosher. I know you didn't hear it, but that's the facts, and we in the industry know it. In the past, the spardom who truly wanted meat from animals Without any sirchus, no adhesions, would eat meat from young calves, where nine out of ten animals truly meet the standard. It's quite easy to get a young animal without sirchus. They come as time goes on, and when they're young, when they're slaughtered young, and you have a you know a calf, so then it's not such well you know it, it's not as common to have the sirchus, but for large animals. It's impossible to have bait be- Yosef glot in such volumes. If people are claiming that much be much meat is Beit Yosef, then there's no shil at all. It's just simple Geneva, and cannot be allowed. That's what the Posek said at the Aco meeting a year ago. Think about it. Um, get yourself a good Ashgachas for the meat, because but the problem is. I'm more worried about the other thing. The way Rabbi uh the way Rabbi Heinemann explained it. And this I can say because he said it all publicly. Rabbi Heinemann explained that if you if you're going to pressure for the Beit Yosef glatt, then what people are gonna do is they're gonna do a soup a, a, see, they're gonna they're going to psychologically, they're now trying to get that perfect animal. And they're gonna look past certain things in order to get it it's just it's the way the mind works the pressure is just too great and if you ever understood what it means to work in the meat business it's all pressure it's pressure sometimes it's pressure from in the old days was a pressure from the owner the owner would walk out into onto the floor and he saw in the in the in the, in the uh, TV uh, that he was looking at the, you know his, his monitor. He was looking at the person working on the floor. He said, "Call the rabbi over." He says, "You don't do that again. You produce. You don't do so much trife." And hey, that's what happened. I know it. People quit over that. But that was the standard back in the eighties. That was what I. That's what people were telling me. It was, it was definitely going on. I know the people who were doing it, <laughs> and I know the people who quit. It was it's a very, 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 uh, it was very, very pressurized. Now, you can't get a, the, a non-Jewish or non-Trum person walking on the floor and doing that. That's not going to happen anymore. But you have the pressure because there's a pressure in the system from the, the owner of the, of, the, of the facility to the cashless agency to the person who's in charge of all the mashgichim and the and the shaykhtim, down till the shaykhtim, and uh, you know there's, there's, there's a there's a pecking order there, and by the time you reach and the person who's above the shaykhtim, he's he's money from them, he's demanding from them, a faster production, more kosher, more glot, now more base yosef glot, so the pressure is on, and if it's not put in words it's there anyway. Now here's another one I thought was interesting. It's, you know, I'll see what Nisam thinks about this one. The, the, I'm uh, ready. Well, <laughs> what did the Rabbanim think of the new trend of small Sefardic Hechsheirim certifying the Khela Ha'acharayim? That's the back of the animal. We didn't do it in America for years and years and years and years. I mean, Decades and decades, we, we, did, we didn't have that here in America. Because uh, we knew it was hard to get the back of the animal properly because they, there's a lot of chilev that's in the, in the, in the acharayim, in the, in the hind quarter. So it was an effective thing. We would cut the animal into four quarters and the front quarters we would buy, and the back quarters, the two back quarters, would be bought by the non Jews. And then we sold the strafe even though it was a shrita, uh, and it was a glad, kosher animal, maybe Yosef glad, but we were selling it away as non kosher because we could. And in this way, we didn't have to lose the extra meat, and it was very difficult in the time. So because of all that, we think that we didn't have Gita Nosha and we didn't have chale problems as much, because a lot of the cuts uh, with the chale on it are in the. On the on the back half of the ribs, and so that you don't have as much problems coming up. That's what we did, and it um, it it worked all these years. But some people like the filet mignon; they want the fancy stuff, and they wanted to. And also, you know, it's style. Like you can get something cuts and names of things that you can't get in the Jewish world. So the few people in America, basically, I think Spardin and. Uh, it, it uh, started doing this. And I talked about it, I wrote about it in the magazine actually. I, taught, I wrote about it in the magazine a, a few years ago, maybe four or five years ago. But anyway, they're asking the question, what do you think about the trend of these small Sephardic Hech certifying the Chela Karharaim, certifying the the hindquarter. Here's what the rabbi answered. It was two different rabbis. In Yerushalayim they've been performing that type of niker for generations. True. And since they know what they're doing, it's perfectly acceptable. However, in order to begin doing this in the United States, not only must there be trained menakrim, menakrim are the ones who take out the, uh, the chaylev and take out the uh, gid hanoshe, but it's also critical that the rabbonim hamarshirim know that tedious nikr is done so that they can oversee it. In other words, the, the rabbanim have to know this too, and they have to oversee it. It's got to be done well. It's and the other rabbi said it's important to seriously investigate anyone's claim to know how to perform this unusual type of nikkur, and until that can be done, it's not recommended. So, what, what, but in Israel, there were people who are, there are people currently who do it. And I suppose have proper training. So of course you could get the training, but again the rabbis have to know that this is being the proper. The people are properly trained. Rabbi Belsky, when for, who Sal, uh, So when he was working for the OU, he introduced the idea of doing venison, deer, and taking the, the deer didn't have the problem of uh, uh, of the Gid, uh, of the uh, Gid, uh, the chaylev. So he only had to worry about gidhanosha. And he knew how to take out the Gitanasha. I saw him take apart an animal several times. Twice, at least twice I saw him take apart an entire animal, explain every single thing in there, everything in Hebrew, everything in English. He described it, the words, the, the, the proper words in English and the proper word in Hebrew, and the Gemara. and the, It was a Gantzashir for three hours and he was taking apart this animal. He, he knows how to take, he knew how to take out the Gira Nasha. And he trained the people in the OU how to take out and So even though they don't do the hindquarters of regular meat, regular animals, bulls—they do it for deer because they don't have a chaylev problem. They do have a gida nausea problem, but the gida because hun- there's no chaylev in, in in a uh, wild animal, and they, so they they they, you know, they have to know how to take out the gida and that they're, they're proficient in because he trained them. So that's uh, that was a big change that happened. But it seems that this has happened or a little bit. I don't know. I personally think. It may take on it may get started again i don't know Uh, it could be unless somebody speaks very much against it It may get started again in america i I can see now that the a the ou made the break with the but having the deer so they're doing the back quarter back behind quarters and uh, these other rabbis who orthodox rabbis i mean they're i mean i'm not necessarily agreeing with what they're doing but they uh but definitely they're you know it, it could take on it could get started who knows if somebody says that it makes a big deal about the filet mignon thing by the way one of these rabbis sells the meat that he makes that he's that he he himself does the the nikkor and he himself sells it so it's all it's all package i mean maybe we don't like that so much it's not independent okay you know that's your choice and it's not cheap by the way because it's the real cuts it's not cheap another question that was asked which is about the um the vegetable inspection. A consumer who is scrupulous about vegetable checking is invited to the home of a relative or friend who is not as careful, but is otherwise a Shomit Torah And he wants to know if he should accept the invitation. How should we respond? I actually discussed this on the show here a week or two ago. I'm not going to tell you that I agree with either of these two rabbis, but I will tell you what they said, so it's not my opinion. If the infant infestation level of the food is which means it's significant, it's like a 10% of the time, then you cannot eat the vegetables. But if the is that the food is permitted and the person just has a personal chumrah not to eat it, then it can be lenient when there is no, when appropriate reason to do so. Which is exactly what I said on the radio a few weeks ago, like my Rabbi said to me thirty years ago or more, that that if uh if it, if it's only a Khumra that you have, then the Khumra can be let go if the if there's a question of on al of of how the other person will feel and uh especially if it's a family situation, especially if some pressures to the family to attend. So that's something again you should speak to your own rabbi about. Uh, the other rabbi answered, due to the seriousness of this issue, one should only eat ve- ve- fresh vegetables checked by someone who is midak deik b'halacha, who knows the halacha well and, they, and who's very careful with it. But if the vegetable in question was already cooked, then the shila should be addressed to a rov who can rule on the status of ava u'bishlo. So in other words, if you cooked food and forgot to take the... Uh, you know, to, to check the thing, then you have to ask a shayla, And sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no, and that's individual one. But these are real questions they were asked uh, at the Aco meeting last year. Another one. Small communities are very much challenged to have a Shomu Shabbos present in their restaurants and catering facilities at all times. What's the minimum halakhically acceptable level of supervision in a restaurant, or catering commissary. In what way does it depend on whether the facility prepares meat, dairy, parva, or a combination of those? They didn't answer, but here's what they said. Nowadays, the criteria for Mashkir is not whether he's a Shomish but rather whether he's a Yerushalayim, is he God-fearing? For only somebody with Yerushalayim, with fear of God, will take the job seriously. The other rabbi said that the, the Akko has a certain uh, uh, you know a, a certain uh, listing that tells you you know what, lay, what in, that they will actually show you the yerushamayim of the uh, of the of the worker of this of the mashgiach. Then he asked about a video camera. Can a video camera be used in, as a form of hashgacha? On a technical level, it can. Theoretically, it can be used, but one must bear in mind that this may take away panossa from individuals. Well, that's not enough of a reason, but unless you're taking, you're taking away from somebody who's already working there, if it's a new job, then no problem. But obviously, that's what the technology is, is getting in. Our time is up. I want to thank everybody listening. This is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine. And uh, if you want to reach me during the week to discuss anything, it's 718-336-8544. Or you can email me at kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com. And until next week, I'm wishing you a wonderful week.